0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller.
2: My guests today are Nicholas Shallan, the Air Force Chief Software Officer. Nick, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. And I'm also joined by John Weiler, the founder and chairman of the IT Acquisition Advisory Council, or ITAAC. John, I think this is your first time on the show, but it's great to have you on.
0: Well, thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you.
2: So, we're talking today, and, and the reason why John's joining us is Nick and John had a, we'll say, a fruitful debate, a, a passionate debate about the future and, and how the government can really improve, and DOD more specifically, how they address legacy IT, technical debt, whatever we're going to call it, but how they can get basically capabilities to the warfighter more quickly and do it more securely. And I think what we're doing today is just trying to kind of talk through this a little bit and understand. The perspectives, but also where DoD is going, where the Air Force is leading it. And and I'm going to start there with with Nick, Cloud One, Platform One, DevSecOps, whatever we're going to call it. This has been a leader. I hear it time and again from different agencies. Well, we're, we're looking at what Air Force is doing and copying them. We're doing what Air Force is doing. So you guys are definitely out in front. So let's discuss this approach. Give me just a little bit of background. You started it about 18 months ago, maybe two years ago. And, and then why'd you start it? The key was to streamline uh, the
1: DevOps and to uh, really empower the duty programs to to move to the without having to centrally creating every piece of the puzzle. And so bringing the enterprise services with Cloud One and Platform One uh, was really foundational to the success of the department. And, and I strongly believe that we need obviously proper govern, government oversight uh, for these teams, but the majority of the work is performed by the defense industrial base. In fact, if you look at the staffing of platform one out of 275 people, we only have 20 government people, both uh, civilian and military. So really we're more in a 90%, 10% uh, government people, 90% uh, contractors. So that's really the right uh, mix, right? We, we don't want to start uh, pushing that needle too far to the right because we obviously depend on the defense industrial base for scale. But at the same time, I think some of the lessons learned is that we need to have proper government oversight when it comes to architectural decisions. So we're not getting locked into a cloud provider. We're not getting locked into a single product. We've seen that times and again, right, where we are effectively trusting entirely on every layer of engineering and, and, and technical architecture, the contractor that's performing the work uh, many times with no government insight. And, and that just is not the right answer, right? So by having that GFE construct, and that's the, the, the game-changing piece, not only we can bring a continuous authority to operate, so, so teams can release software continuously multiple times a day. Uh, right now, platforming is able to release to production 21 times a day, which is unheard of in the government, I believe. And then, but but at the same time, we provide access to that environment, to the Dib at all classification <laughs> levels, removing the barrier to entry, by the way, to startups, having to comply with things like CMMC and things like that coming coming in. That's a very difficult ask for companies that are just getting started, that want to do business with the department. And that's reducing, the options that we have to outsource work to smaller startups. So so by providing that DevSecOps environment day one uh, to companies that are getting grants with a fiber on AppWorks uh, all the way to uh, subs and primes for the larger engagements, that effectively streamlines the access to DevSecOps while providing insight to the government in terms of continuously watching quality of code, security, uh, passing the scans, passing the tests, so, we're not waiting four or five years to discover massive issues in integration. And we can actually continuously release software to production in the hands of the wall fighter. So, it's not in a vacuum. We have proper feedback from the actual end user. And so, that's why I think it's the it's right mix, right, between uh, uh, government, contractor, and getting the best of,
2: of, of all of them, right? I want to go back to one thing you said at the beginning of, of, of that. The, the, the mix of, of government to people, about 275 staffing on, on platform one, only 20 government people. If you told me 50, if you told me 75, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. But it just seems small. Walk me through how that's broken down because that oversight is, is you're absolutely right. Without the right oversight, projects go sideways very quickly.
1: It is too small, and we we've been fighting to to get more and more bids, and uh, finally we we were getting another 20 in the next uh, few months, so that's good. And you're right, uh, that's probably too low, but you know, and people are overworked, and that's not good. You want to sustain that and and make it a healthy environment, also for for the government oversight uh, people. And I, I think, look, I, I think that the key is to scale right. What you don't want is micromanage. You want to set the right. Uh, guardrails uh, baked into the process. And when you release software in Platform 1, the way we accredit continuously multiple times a day, uh, contractors cannot effectively stop diverging from that construct. They have to stick to that process. They cannot bypass testing and, and, you know, cheat cyber scans and stuff like that. So we know the quality, we know the the productivity, we can track velocity of work, we have agile, you know, uh, implementation to track the work and the productivity and how we cut the work. So the government people are focused on taking the big requirements, getting them into epics and user stories and prioritizing the backlog and grooming the backlog to prioritize work, but at the same time, defining the architecture of implementation, validating the, the plan, so looking at uh, things like, uh, you know, architecture diagrams on how the data flows and uh, the different tools we're going to be using—is there any type of vendor locking aspect? You know, are there are, are they open tools? Which, by the way, open source doesn't mean we just trust open tools, right? Um, every time we use open source software, we're going to have support contracts that go with it. Uh, we don't just, you know, I mean, of course, we have few open source bits with no support because it's just tight, tiny little piece of software here and there for small things, but the meaningful engagements we do like on Kubernetes and, and things, we always have uh, support contracts for that. And, and then, you know, keep in mind also, we don't, all, all, we don't just trust the open source bits. We rebuild, we sign it, we scan it with three scanners, and then we push and contribute back uh, fixes upstream to fix any cyber issues. We, we contributed uh, at least a hundred plus fixes to uh, open source communities in the last year. Um, and, and with a support contract, right, we, we we make sure we're not getting locked in, we make sure we, we're getting the right support, uh, and that's how we scale.
2: I want to bring John into the conversation, but just one quick follow-up. The extra billets you're getting, is uh, something coming this summer or this fall? Do you know yet? Yeah, it's supposed to be within before the summer. All right, excellent, excellent. Uh, I think, glad to, you may get a lot of applications now, so my apologies if you start getting inundated. Uh, let me bring John Weiler into it from ITAC. Now, John... Over the years, you've been, uh, I will call, a passionate person, really pushing for the government to change, to relook at how they deliver software, how they deliver IT. But let me take a half a step back before I let you go. Uh, get, explain your passion, and just give me about 30 seconds about ITAC and and kind of why you're in this conversation today.
0: The ITAC got stood up as uh, out of I guess frustration out of the House Armed Services Committee and the oversight committee of uh, Congressman Lankford and Congressman Darrell Issa. I had gone in uh, under the umbrella of the uh, I, what's called the Interoperability Clearinghouse, or ICH, which was uh, formed by John Hamry and company around 2000, as a way of putting teeth in the Clearer cohen Act. And it was clear that the government was not you know, embracing the purchase of commercial items and embracing commercial best practices. So, we had already successfully implemented a process called ASap for the Air Force uh, in prior years with Mike Wynn as my champion and others participating and, and What we had learned in that process was that the government was struggling with the expertise or the ability to reach outside the defense industrial base to really understand what the commercial market was doing, you know not only in terms of identifying commercial items and the lessons learned around using those but also. The processes by which we build business cases, the process by which we write requirements, the process by which we develop architectures. And DOD's approach to those three items was, you know, in the dark ages. It was just not aligned. After standing up the ITAC as a public private partnership of like minded nonprofits and standards bodies, we were very progressive in helping OMB and the Pentagon and Congress, saying there is a better way, we have found it please give us legislation to help. So the first draft of FITARA was actually Section 804 of the National Defense and uh, NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act of 2010. Uh, we had worked with the Defense Science Board back then, and they wrote a, a document that's very good that talks about reimagining the entire acquisition, SDLC. And where Nick comes in with that SecOps, you know, plugs in great into those recommendations you know once you you come in and you have an architecture you have some requirements and you understand that you have a a business problem um so we need nick to be successful in the once we develop that early set of processes around governance portfolio management Better architect. The DODAF is not an architecture framework, by the way. <laughs> it is a systems engineering documentation tool. It doesn't fulfill the broader needs of service orientation. So the Air Force lessons learned all kind of fit into this process and the ITAC became the conduit for helping agencies embrace agile acquisition. In fact, the uh, Chief Management Officer of the Pentagon took our frameworks that we developed with the Air Force, modified them, and turned them into acquisition policies. Now, are they used today? Not really that much. <laughs> I've actually had more success with uh, uh, civilian agencies than DOD for reasons I'm sure Nick can understand. There's a cultural resistance to change, and, and we all have to tip our hat to Nick being able to break through those cultural barriers with his champion, Will Roper. And without top cover, like uh, Nick has received, you don't get change. So he, is, he has broken down some humongous rice bowls. My ta- you know, I don't always agree on the fidelity of the execution. There are, there's things that we haven't chatted about in detail, so I've made some assumptions, sometimes incorrectly. But he is pushing against the right windmill. And I, I believe together, if we can fix some of the architecture, planning, and market research processes, where you can, with high degree of uh, fidelity of understanding the market, you can separate the make-buy decisions. You can say, okay, this part of the thing has to be built, and I'm going to control that baseline. And we need to control that baseline. We've looked at failures like AOC, Air Operations Center, DCGS, GeoScout, JRSS, and all of them have the same waterfall, you know, make-bias processes. And I'm not saying you should never make, but you need to know when you make something versus when you buy it. And then you assemble them through DEFSECOPs. So Nick has has the the right approach, but we need better informed front end processes. We need better portfolio management. We need a real a service oriented architecture to support his his programs. Because without it, we're we're going to fall
2: short. John, I gave you 30 seconds. I think you took five minutes, which is just perfect. So (laughs) I appreciate the passion came out. Nick, respond a little bit. The culture piece that John is talking about is not new to any organization. But when you walked in and and forgive me about, about two years ago or a little bit more now, did you find that big obstacle called culture?
1: Yeah, sure. No, of course. I think it's, it's not just culture. It's the silos, right? You effectively have to convince so many people. And look, I think John is spot on, right? A lot of the stuff he's saying is, is right, right? Um, and by the way, platform one, when you look at the stack we ended up building versus using, we have probably 95% of the code base is either open source of cost only five percent that's really glue code connecting things together right that, that by the way we open sourced it. so you know uh, they saw uh so we're not creating this god's nightmare and i completely agree we, we shouldn't be uh, often in the business of of building too much code although you know for some mission stuff obviously you have no choice absolutely um, some of the things like GRSS and stuff like that obviously um shouldn't probably not be uh, custom code and just use other shelf and existing cyber capabilities in fact that's what we're pushing now Uh, with the next generation of JRSS with what we did at P1 for Zero Trust. And we are the most advanced uh, Zero Trust architecture in Platform 1 for uh, across all of the government. Honestly, we have have agencies reaching out from every side of the the .gov and .mail uh, side to look at how we build our Zero Trust architecture, which is 100% based on cuts and and open source software. So there's that. Uh, so I completely agree. Uh, mo- many times, unfortunately, the, the reason is we have a massive lack of talent in project management on the technical side. What I mean by that is someone that has what I would call a, a cloud native architect background. Um, you know, a lot of people are talking, hey, you know, the Air Force needs to have more airmen coders. I, I don't I don't think I agree with that. I think it's sure. I mean, it's, it's great. We have them and we need them. and But that's not the the most important piece that we need. The most important piece that we need that we don't have, and we are building curriculums now, and and I've I've been insisting on the importance of those roles, is that cloud-native architect that can guide the project in making buying versus building decisions, and also not just buying, but how you interconnect all these different tools together. People don't realize one tool, if you do something very complex, might not be uh the single one-size-fits-all answer. So we need to bring things in different ways. We're going to need to bring maybe a couple of open-source tools, tie, tie it with a, some commercial tool, maybe a second commercial tool. That's really what Platform One is doing, by the way. It's, it's a mix of tools. We, we we barely built, I mean, we had to do a few tiny things, but 99% of the stuff is off the shelf and commercial uh, open-source uh, software as well. So, you know, back to the silo conversation, right? I don't know if it's culture. I mean, obviously ego can get in the way and that, that's, that might have an ego too, I guess. Uh, but the—the the, the, what's interesting is more the, uh, the I don't know if it's culture, it's, it's silos, right? Because um, effectively you, you end up having to convince 20 times more people than you would have to convince in a normal organization. Maybe of not the same size, but even a large Fortune 10, you would not have that many silos. And it, it just creates uh, effectively this inertial of change, because you, you, you you're, you're thinking you're making progress, but you're just making progress in this tiny silo. I mean, back to John's point, right? he mentioned a few programs that I agree with that we we maybe could have done a better job at architecting those stacks up front and it was before my time, so I, I guess say's that. but the fact is, if you look even across these, they are competing programs right, even now doing the same thing across silos, across services. And I'm still, you know, it was mind-boggling to me when I joined, coming from commercial, that we are fighting across services more so than we're fighting against our enemies. And and I don't, I never understood why there was so much conflict between Navy Air Force and Army. And people, oh no, that's an Army thing. We're not going to use. I'm like, I I don't understand that. Right? Maybe people need to wake up and realize we're fighting against China and Russia.
0: Next spot on, by the way.
2: Real quick, John, like, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can, can continue the conversation because, Nick, there's a, I had a good conversation with Lauren Knausenberger that I want to touch upon with you on, on the competing programs piece. But first, we'll take a quick break. My guests today are Nicholas Shalon, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer, and John Weiler, the founder and chairman of ITAC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Nick Shalan, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer, and John Weiler, the Founder and Chairman of ITAC. Right before break, Nick was talking about the, the challenges of kind of fighting through the silos, getting the Army and the Air Force and the Navy and others to work together. John, I want to have you jump in here about the silos too, because that, that's another big issue that you at, at ITAC and, and others have been trying to overcome is, is hey, if you develop application that works in the Army, why can't it just work in the Navy too? Why do we have to have separate and and not always equal uh, applications? So, John, jump in about the silo issue and what you're seeing.
0: There's a couple issues that drive that. One is how Congress funds agencies. They want to fund them and have control over those funding and where that money gets spent, i.e. within their constituencies. Let's take a, a couple case studies about silos and the inability for our services to cooperate. DCGS, Distributed Common Ground uh, System. It's a ISR portfolio. Basically, it solves mostly the same problems for the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps, and each one has their own multi-billion dollar implementation, separate and apart, and nothing common. So now if we want to do JADC2 or ABMS. We can't communicate because each system was developed completely independently with a separate architecture without any coordination and any oversight saying, why are we doing this in duplication? The other one is the uh, F-35. We had to have a plane that did everything perfectly for everyone and no one was forced to you know, give up on that narrow requirement that, that was unique to them. So this whole, you know, this really goes to the whole acquisition lifecycle and how, you know, uh, risk-based decisions aren't made because we're not looking at what is it going to cost us, what is the risk of implementation, what are the delays of having everyone's favorite little addition integrated into that requirement. So this this whole concept of incremental agile development, you know, being risk-based really has to continue to evolve. And I think Nick has done a great job in beginning that process. But there there has to be political leadership at the top of the Pentagon and Congress that it'll put aside congressional rice bowls as well. And that's not going to happen.
2: John, don't be such a pessimist. It could happen. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that John said that I thought was interesting, and, and, and John, you talk about these two good examples but I'll throw, a kind of, I'll, I'll throw another one, I'll throw the opposite at you. There's been attempts over the years to try to create that coordination. Uh, we've seen it, for instance, uh, enterprise email through DISA years ago. It was uh, the AKO efforts, right? Army AKO, DISA had an AKO, Army you know, online. Those were attempts that also were supposed to be done in coordination, and, and they struggled too. Was that struggle, again, going back to the silo issue that no one wanted to give up their own specific requirements? Or or what is the other issue that that is, is at play here?
0: I think it's a control issue. The more money you get and the more money you spend directly relates to your promotion. So there's people that have moved up in the Pentagon over 20 years, as I've been 25 years, whose only success was controlling a large pool of money in the billions and executing on that as funds, regardless of whether the program succeeded or not. I've seen program managers you know, in the Army overseeing the failed future combat system, which General Murray says we should not repeat, but we we will, you know, where we spent $12 billion building operating systems and chip manufacturing plants, and everything was created unique for the Army. Not not only were other services already delivering on those capabilities, but commercial industry had already figured it out. We don't need to write a separate operating system for DOD, but there was is, there is no effective oversight that was supported by effective market research and risk-based decision-making that said, wait a second, do you realize that this is going to create this outcome? You know, we try to provide that. In fact, in in situations we were able to help the government, we have found some uncommon successes, you know, bringing that light and saying, hey, this decision has a humongous impact potential. Do you really want to make it that, do you really want to bring in that requirement?
2: Let me go back to the silos discussion as well for a second. (laughs) I had an interesting conversation with the Department of Air Force CIO, Lauren Knalsenberger, and she mentioned that the software factories that have come up, whether it's Kessel Run or Kobayashi Maru or or yours to a certain extent, you know, Cloud One, Platform One are great. She loves them, but she feels like maybe we're getting a little, there's a little bit of a proliferation and and how to kind of create some governance around that proliferation. Are you seeing that same thing or is there concern on your end from where you sit with Platform One that do you know what's happening over here and over there. And and she brought the example of there was 10 different flight scheduling applications being done at one time. And not that that's bad because everyone's learning something, but we could have all been a little more coordinated. So maybe two would have been enough, but still people
1: got that same experience can can you talk to that a little bit yeah, i think there's a couple of points right I, I i'm not too worried about the volume of factories assuming they use the same enterprise services i think that the minute where things uh, go wrong is when everybody's reinventing the wheel if you if you have a very well defined mission focus and you're focusing on a specific piece of the pie and you're not reinventing the wheel and you're using the enterprise services i have no problem i think that uh, two hundred factories, right? As long as they're well defined and using enterprise services and they're not wasting taxpayer money. Effectively that means we're all moving to Agile for every program in the department. And we have a lot of programs. You know, John mentioned a few of them. We have hundreds of them. We have maybe thousands of them. I don't even know the number. But the fact is 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 probably too many. And and again, the the, the key is not to stop saying, Oh, we're gonna we're gonna cut down to three or, or whatever. The, the, the key is to say let's understand what is needed as an enterprise service. And that's why Cloud One and Platform One are so important. So these teams, uh, and you mentioned Kessar and Kobayashi Maru, who, who, who don't use Platform One today, right, and effectively build their own platforms from scratch and, and, and often their own cloud structure from scratch, that, that's just not what the future should look like because we're spending a lot of money and time on the basics of life when that should be commodity provided by enterprise services. And back to your point on the silos, right? I think that the real issue is that we have too many cooks in the kitchen, right? You want to get your user uh, feedback and you want to be able to build enterprise services uh, with that feedback, but you don't want to do it in a vacuum, but you also don't want to have every little requirements on the plan. And look, that's what I'm good at, right? I, I mean, the fact is when I build enterprise services, I think as an entre- as an entrepreneur, and I think of it as, you know, those people are my customers. Do you want to please all your customers and please nobody? No, you want to, you want to go after the 80% and, and then solve the 20% along the way, right? And you don't want to have a one-size-fits-all. That's why platform one has so many options, right? We don't have a one-size-fits-all. That's how we should build enterprise services, Honestly, that the real problem is the Department of Defense has no clue how to build enterprise services. We we do it with mandates instead of uh, you know pushing the right technologies and the right approaches and getting people excited to use them, and then we do it at, at a pace as 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 slow as a uh, snail, sorry, and, and so you, you you just not delivering fast enough. So people have no choice but to create their own. And now you have a bunch of snowflakes all over the place, right? So many times, by the way, the reason why we have 10 or 20 of something is because we failed to build the enterprise solution, right? And everybody using other excuses is is just wrong because even if Congress is funding stuff in silos, nothing stops us from partnering. And I've demonstrated it where Platform 1 was completely funded out of Hyde across some of the big programs, they were all supposed to do DevSecOps. And we were able to join funding uh, to create Platform One. We didn't have to wait for Congress to create a Platform One bucket of money to do it. We could still do joint engagements so that funding is then centralized uh, in terms of buying a centralized capability and breaking the silos despite the fact that the funding is allocated in silos. So, so that's just, that's an easy excuse to go back and blame Congress. I would argue, sure, we can do much better and break some of the silos and have less PE's and consolidate PE's, and, but the fact is we can still create enterprise services and we demonstrated it with uh, Cloud One and Platform One.
2: John, I want you to jump in, but Nick, what was the key to creating that partnership? Was it the Will Roper or somebody above him said do it, or was it was it just your team's ability to show, hey, if you use this, look how quickly the benefits were clear right away? Or both?
1: I, I think it's all of it, right? But obviously having a top cover from the top and people knowing that uh, he's serious about it, and he was, so he helped. I would still argue you could still do it without it, by the way. I don't think that's really a 100% always needed. It's going to accelerate drastically the pace of adoption. But the fact is, if you have a good service and you, you think of those people as your customers, which often we don't do, right? Even you know, if you, took, you take a look at some of the enterprise services up there, you may see that those people will say, well, we, we're mandated to be used. You have to use us. That's not the answer, right? The answer is, are you providing the value we need? and you should treat me as a customer not as a the other way around right so 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 anyway the, i think the key is to put entrepreneurs hat and start building enterprise services as companies within the department that needs to satisfy the customers and the customers are the war fighters and we need to deliver capabilities uh, at the pace of relevance and then you know egos can get in a way right you know, sometimes i see people say well you know you have a 95 percent solution But instead of uh, spending money to help you fix the 5%, I'm going to spend a lot more money to rebuild the entire thing from scratch. That's short-sighted. That's nonsense. And the leadership should step up and be like, that's it. And that's what Lauren was talking about, right? We have to stop the nonsense of uh, uh, enabling and allowing people just to create snowflakes left and right. We need to first go to the enterprise service, look at it, see why it's not working or not a good fit, explain why, Get a waiver or get a you know, get something to potentially fix it. By the way, g- just bringing money to fix the five percent is so much easier than building the entire thing all over again, right? That that makes just common sense. John, jump in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to agree with Nicholas. He's spot on on that. You know there are issues about control that you have to address, and I, I, I point. I call this cultural. Maybe that's not the same definition that Nick uses. But there are cultural issues by which an organization doesn't want to lose power or authority over the systems that they control. And the more that you control, the higher you move up into an organization. So there's a whole procession of promotions that are based on how much money you're controlling, what programs you control. And so that's a disincentive to what Nick is trying to get done. Now, a good business case analysis. And risk-based decision-making, data-driven decisions can help mitigate that. And I think if the individual is is shown, okay, we are documenting that you are making a decision that has higher risk and higher cost, there may be a ramification for you doing this in conflict with what is in the best interest of our country. And and driving data-driven decisions requires better market research better performance metrics, and sometimes some good tools on the portfolio management side and the architecture side that gives us visibility that can document and load up maybe to the DOD CIO or the DepSecDev and saying, hey, here's the status of all these decisions. And by the way, here's platform one and somebody else is uh, developing an identical thing. Do you really want to do that? And, and with, you know, strong category management and strong t- portfolio management and things like TBM, technology business management, those are enabling tools to help drive better decisions and coordination. A- and Nick is feeling the consequence of that lack of maturity in that process and program management, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, John is right, right? But I like to call it culture because it's just too easy. People hide behind culture. Culture is a mythical thing. It's 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 so abstract. People will find excuses to say, "Oh, it's not me; it's the culture." The fact is usually people ego. I mean, let's make it precise because culture just means everything and nothing. That's why I don't like using the word culture. Everybody hides behind it. Um, but you you're right again, right? In terms of also the the study, that the issue we see also is the the government then overreacts when we start talking about studying stuff, right? We start doing analysis of alternative that takes two years instead of what I like to do, which is, hey, let's try things out fast. Do a three-month MVP, try things out, see how how it goes, see if that's the right approach, maybe two MVPs in parallel, try things out in small increments. The fact is, when we fund stuff in the department, we're the only organization probably on the planet that shows up with billions day one. We should think of everything as startups, right? We should have a small pot of money, tiny you know, little engagements that we uh, bootstrap, demonstrate value and grow you should never wake up the morning and say oh by the way i'm going to start a new project this morning and they got me five billion to do this Um, that's not ever the answer we should always have incremental delivery of capability and maybe there is a big pot of money but maybe it shouldn't be allocated through this massive contract action uh, effectively creating the whole acquisition process to become this nightmare, right, where where you're you investing $2 billion up front, where, where the fact is maybe we should not do these massive contracts and maybe we should have smaller engagements, try things out. I would rather honestly do four small pilots in three months and get data out of that and, and real um, results and tangible things than spending a year doing an analysis of alternatives. But at the same time, you know, we don't fund this way. That's why Platform 1 has also brought these contract vehicles where we're trying to break that 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 kind of concept of hey we have to, to um allocate funding always in the billions. That that's not that that can't be the answer. The the fact is even when you look at how we buy uh, jets and embedded systems, it's foolish to think that the, the, the same company that's able to do a great job in hardware or or, or stuff like that is or embedded systems is going to be great at building software. Maybe they're not and maybe it should be a mixed teams. I don't know, right? Or, I I don't believe in the prime model. I I think we need to uh, move away from that uh, prime sub model. I think we need to have the government become the prime and and then have a bunch of subs um, doing different things and cutting the work in smaller bites. And the smaller bites can be uh, smaller bites of funding too. Uh, And they have a very precise delivery and measuring the work and the quality and the delivery and the timeliness. Um, that's how we, bu- we buy on the commercial side. We, we would never go and say, Hey, I'm, I'm, i have this great idea. Give me two billion and we're going to try to do this.
2: On that note, let's take a quick break. My guests today are Nicholas Shallan, the air force's chief software officer and John Weiler, the founder and chairman of ITAC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to ask the CIO on federal news network.
0: When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Nicholas Shallan, the Air Force's Chief Software Officer, and John Weiler, the founder and chairman of the ITAC. The whole reason we're talking about DevSecOps and the whole push toward it, not just in government, but across the entire technology sector is to lower the risk, and that, and that's what Agile and DevSecOps does. Let me start with Nick, and then John. I want you to weigh in. But Nick, how are you measuring that lowering of risk through Platform One? What are some of those KPIs? You, you say this shows that this incremental approach is 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 better, is is working. Walk me through some of your
1: metrics. There's two side of that, right? There's the Agile benefits, and then which is 20 years old, by the way. So we should wake up. When I started my career, I was 14. Uh, and yet I was already kind of using agile and I'm 36 now and we're still apparently learning at basic agile principle uh, principles in, in the department. Uh, and, and then you have DevSecOps, right? So, so agile benefits are obviously this more incremental delivery of capabilities. So you validate by deploying things in production in the hands of the end user, the warfighter to see that what you're doing actually makes sense. So you're not spending four years building something that by the end of the four year is a complete waste of time and money. And you're not know, finding out that it's not working or not successful after months and years of investment. It should be small incremental delivery of, of capabilities. That's all we do at platform one. Every value stream we have and how we cut work is cut into small value stream. And my mandate is that every single time we have a three months MVP maximum. We never go past three months MVPs. We need to see tangible value after three months. That should be mandated for the entire government, if you ask me. That's Agile 101, right? Now, the second piece of the DevSecOps benefits where you're gonna get uh, that visibility of testing, security, uh, change management, right? So you can enforce with gates, with automation. So it's not uh, snowflakes. It's actually part of the process and so no one can temper or cheat the system by having gates, automated gates that would check the code quality and security. So you're not pushing this to the right, making that massive tech debt right by being able to automate and push it to the left and automate the airworthiness assessment by the way that doesn't mean we remove people right it it just means we automate as much as we can and we let people focus on the human side that only human can do well And, and that's usually the more advanced stuff instead of the basics right now we have people wasting time on basics where honestly uh, that could be automated. That That's not good use of, of people's time. So no one should be worried about losing their jobs. It's not about reducing the workforce. It's about being efficient, right? And increasing throughput and increasing velocity of work and delivering more for the same amount of money, right? The, the fact is we probably have the worst ratio of delivery of capability, you know, dollar for dollar compared to a commercial uh, organization, right? Because we not only the The acquisition process takes $0.40 of every dollar just because of the massive nightmare of paperwork. But then even once you have the $0.60 left, that $0.60 is actually also wasted by lack of velocity and and, and automation. So, again, when you mix Agile and SecOps into a single construct, and that should be, by the way, the only way to build software in 2021 – there's just no reason not to use it. No organization will not use DevSecOps in 2021 and be successful in competing with their uh, competitors, right? So, And we have competitors. We, we sometimes forget who they are, but we, we do have them, right? And, and so that's, that's the key overall, right, of the success story of what we're trying to do. John, jump in.
0: Yeah, Nick makes uh, great points, and I'm glad he brings up the construct of value streams and value stream analysis. I mean, those are disciplines we don't apply in DOD. You know, we have embodied that along with a whole other set of tools, you know, commercial disciplines around IT management, governance. When we look at failure analysis, you know, from my point of view, I learn more from failure than success. At least it tells you what not to do. You know, it helps you recognize these failure patterns early in the process. You know, JRSS, we were brought in early by DISA, and it got overwhelmed. Our our analysis, which was, you know, supported by overwhelming evidence, we said, well, no, we have the ability to be unique, and we're big, and we're the biggest, baddest, and the best in the world. We're the biggest organization. And I go, big doesn't mean that you're successful. DOD's average success rate of delivering timely capabilities – per the House Armed Services Committee, is only 16%. 16% success rate is terrible. And, and, and Nick is generous when he says 40% of the funds go into analysis paralysis. I think it's higher, you know, from the data that we saw. When we looked at NMCI, when that first got recompeted, they spent over a billion dollars on meeting all the acquisition policy requirements. And that took seven years. And the, the award was only $900 million. Nine hundred and it, and, and it was horrible. It was a solution that no one wanted. So we really need to recognize that we are already losing to near-peer competitors who have a fraction of our funding, but most of their funding is going to buying outcomes, not, you know, perpetuating these broken industrial age waterfall processes that never deliver. And the contractors that survive in that world that profit from that cottage industry Somebody needs to call it out. I call it out occasionally, but it really needs to be called out. Are you really helping our country by perpetuating, you know, this, you know, very costly analysis wa- paralysis waterfall process in IT? And, and by the way, I, I think even in weapon systems, we should be more incremental, not just IT. You know, we're saying, hey, I, we're going to buy a new helicopter. I'm going to buy the one that works. Not, I'm not going to pay you to do, specify how helicopters are built by guys who've never been in a helicopter before. We've talked a lot about
2: the problem, and I think it's important to also talk about the solution. And Nick, I love the fact you said we should just mandate DevSecOps and Agile and and enough of this prime sub, the government should be the prime. There's been a push over the years for something called Lead Systems Integrator. The government's swung this way on it, meaning we got to use LSIs. They've swung back this way. We can't use them anymore. (laughs) And and so I'm going to go back to the solution seems to me, and, and, and both of you can weigh in on this, is it's not whatever process we use or it's not whatever <laughs> approach. It's the training of the employees. And I think, Nick, you, you mentioned this earlier on about getting the people that are, are understand like cloud architecture and project management. Is that the biggest solution that we can all point to is, is we got to train and upskill and reskill and hire the right employees? The biggest gap we have
1: is the fact that we don't invest in our people and we, we don't do a good job at uh, continuous learning. When you look at the pace of IT and most of the tech we're using as platform money is less than three years old. So you can't go to train the trainer model. You can't wait years to learn it. You have to learn multiple times a day and continuously do, do that. Uh, so so the answer is never gonna be, and that's always the issue with the government. They're gonna say, we're gonna send everybody to a one month train <laughs> and that's, that's gonna solve nothing because uh, um, six months from then, they're gonna be obsolete again. So the the key is continuous learning. We give an hour a day to our people at Platform 1 so they can go and learn. We're bringing unbiased training contents from Linux Foundation, Cloud Native Computing Foundation, and already the books. So we can have uh, content coming from, you know, uh, uh, unbiased sources. So they're learning the right way and not just eating, you know, one company's Kool-Aid, which we see left and right uh, in IT. And more importantly, they can uh, have a sandbox to practice so they're, they're not learning in a vacuum. So, again, it's all about the, the, the workload that Lauren and I have been doing, you know, with things like Digital University and, and bringing that training content to the department and also to the contractors. Because we have, you know, since they're doing the work, they also have to use the same uh, principles, right? So it's all about investing in people.
2: All right, without a doubt, this is a difficult problem. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully, the folks who are listening and you all have, have provided some insights and some ways to solve this never-ending problem. And I think there's a lot of progress. So let's not underestimate the progress that is being made both at the Air Force, but obviously the Army is following suit with the army We're seeing good things happen at places like PTO and USCIS over at DHS. I'm sure there's others that I'm, I'm forgetting. On that note, let me thank my guests. Nicholas Shallan is the Air Force Chief Software Officer. Nick, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. And John Weiler is the founder and chairman of the IT Acquisition Advisory Council, or ITAC. John, always a pleasure to talk to you as well.
0: Thank you very much.
2: I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network.
1: You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.